0: The semifinals, book five, note number eight. This um, note, although it's called a note, is more actually a letter. In some ways it belongs in book four, which was the book of the Alter letters. It's a letter on prayer. Many of the letters in book four focused on tzedakah. Some of them were about tefillah, were about prayer, and the Tanya concludes with two letters on prayer, this week and next week. Two, not just letters, you can tell their calls from deep within the Alter Rebbe's heart for improvement in the situation on prayer. We don't know exactly when the letter was written. It seems like it's written sometime in the late 1790s it's obvious that there were some communities where reports were coming in to the Alter Rebbe that uh, prayer wasn't being held to the high standard that it should. And so the Alter Rebbe sent out a number of letters, both collectively to the Hasidim and to individual communities, to inspire them, reawaken, reignite the flame that should be present during prayer. There was actually... Uh, a Rebbe, who had a court. He held his, uh, his Hasidim in a certain city in Russia, and there was a certain prominent businessman that came to visit him for a holiday, and uh, he spent a couple of days in the Rebbe's presence, and one day after Shachris, after morning prayers, the Rebbe comes over to him and says, Rebbe welcome back. So he goes, welcome back. I'm here a couple of days already. What do you mean, welcome back? He says, no, no, no. Welcome back from Leipzig, from the big city with the fair. What are you talking about? I I don't know what you're saying. The Rebbe says, will you tell me what you were thinking about during Shemona Esrei this morning? (laughs) (laughs) The Rebis were in tune. They can feel thoughts. (coughs) So he said, welcome back. You took a trip. And and you came back. I think I've said it a few times in the classes. There's a verse in Tehillim that says, ele varechev ele b'shem Hashem These ones come with chariots. These ones come with horses. And we come with the name of God that we mentioned. Okay, so so, so that, yeah. So there was a Hasidic twist on it. They used to say, some people travel with chariots. Some people travel with horses. The Jews, they come to shul. They say Hashem's name. And they're already taking far trips. They go far <laughs> away with Hashem's name. And uh, we all, we all daven, ideally three times a day, four times on Shabbos, five times on Yom Kippur. If we don't get to do it every day, we definitely engage with prayer pretty often in our lives. And if I could sum it up, the struggle with prayer is not so much to figure out whether Hashem is paying attention, as much as it is to figure out whether we're paying attention. You often hear many people. I come to shul. I, don't, I, I struggle with the sitter because it feels like I'm talking to the wall. You know, I'm, I'm not talking to anybody. But the truth is, that part is easier to solve. What's harder to work out is, are, are you, are you present in the uh, in the experience of prayer? And it's especially true in light of Hasidic teachings, because until Hasidus came around, the common perception of prayer, was that it was simply a shopping list. It's a time to come to Hashem, tell Him what you need, and ask Him to give it to you. Dryly, legally speaking, you look in the Rambam, that's how davening is described. (inaudible) It's a time to ask for your needs, which you need. And when Hasidus illuminated the inner meaning, the inner dimension of every mitzvah, its discussions on prayer shifted the focus from the selfish to the selfless. Instead of davening being just another chance to ask for what you need, Hasidus went to the premise of that. If you're asking Hashem for what you need, then that means you're having a meeting with Hashem. How much of that meeting are we really acknowledging? Of course, asking for our needs is important, and that's the text, that's the body of the text of the davening. But the spirit and the heart of davening is a time to step in, to a sacred space where we can be one with our creator for just a few moments. <coughs> and to be honest, it's, it's a concept that's so foreign to today's world. The amount of distraction that exists, especially today in our modern times, is so powerful, it's so intense, that uh, it just, it takes so much just to shut it off. Forget about mentally you know, having the effort to focus your attention on something else. Just to get rid of all the things that are vying for our attention at every moment of every day, all the neon lights ringing in all directions, from our phones, to our social media, to our work. We're engaged with so much at the same time that to say, you know, put it aside, meet with Hashem, just the words ring strange to many people. Huh? Hold my calls, right? Remember those days? Go to the secretary, hold my calls. Nobody's holding my calls for nothing. You take your, your phone with you, it's like it's become another limb. Nobody can go to the bathroom anymore and just think. Well, Wherever we go. Huh? And our prayers are on the phone. Our sitter yeah. is on the phone. Yeah. You know something? Uh, have you all heard of Shalom Mordechai Rubashkin? He was the man who was incarcerated, said this 27 years, and he was freed miraculously. Uh, in 20, 2017, at the end of Hanukkah, he was eight years in prison. And they made a massive celebration for him in 770, the night that he came out. I was there during that. Uh, Were you there? Was in 770 it, wasn't, the, wasn't the energy wow. just insane? It was amazing. It was, was beyond brilliant. unbelievable. They kept singing for, I don't know, five, six hours. They hours. They didn't stop. Over and, over and, over. and of course, everybody was there you know, with their phones filming. And a couple of days later, he gave a little speech and he said, you know, when he went into jail, this, it, was still, it was pre-smartphone phenomenon in the sense of how ubiquitous it is. And uh, he's like, I'm learning so many new things. He's like, I heard people have davening on their phone. He mentioned that, the sitter on their phone. And he was really campaigning. He's like, guys. The phone is something you can take into the bathroom. Don't daven from the phone, even if it's there. Like, you know, use, it, use it when you need. You're on a trip, you're on a camping trip. Okay, daven. But if you can, like daven from a sitter, the, like, the phone is so mundane. You just remind me that because we said davening is on the phone. But that's, that's the truth of the matter. The truth of the matter is everything becomes mixed together. And to really tell somebody, meet with Hashem, put aside everything, it's, it's very, very hard. Truth is, the altar actually makes mention in this note that it wasn't always this way. You know, it, it was closer to home for many people. People were more sensitive, first of all, spiritually. They were less distracted, and um, to use the of his language, they had bigger souls. Mm-hmm. People used to have bigger souls; mm-hmm. they were they were on on a, on a greater level, and they were able to tune in faster. It takes so much time today for us to tune in. Come into shul; you can't just zip, you know, engage into the experience. You're coming into shul, you're carrying so much with you from the outside. You've got to sit down, take time to kind of let it unwind. Yeah, let it settle, and only then. But in the times of old, they were able to just walk in and kind of center in, zoom in, zone in to that space. And um, that's why their sitter was shorter. Out there, the sitter used to be shorter because it didn't require so much work. You know, it was, it was an easier job. That had done. They can focus all their passion on Torah study. And... Uh, <coughs> It was kind of a come in and come out. You know, do your thing. But uh, but today it's reversed. Today it's reversed. No sensitivity to spirituality, tons of distraction. And therefore, to daven, while it's still our mission, we don't, you know, just because we have more obstacles doesn't mean we don't do what we have to do. We still have to daven, but it now requires a very, very real investment. To... In, to uh, to get into it. And specifically the Alter Rebbe zooms in in this note, this letter on two specific areas of davening that, that highlight the necessity for investment in it. One starts with an Aleph and one starts with a base. Ahava and Birur. Ahava means love, emotion, passion. Birur means refinement or clarity, and I'll explain what each of these mean. Way back, in Book 1, in Chapter 18, you can go back to the class and listen to it, I told a story, very compelling story in my opinion, in which the the Hasidic dynasty of Gur was established by Rabbi Yitzchak Meir, the Chidushi Harim, He created a flourishing movement, hundreds and thousands of Hasidim. It was huge before the war. And he outlived his children. All his children passed away in his lifetime. By the time he passed away, the successor to him was a young boy, his grandson, a young boy of 16 years old. And he was, of course, a righteous man. He took over the movement. But some of the elder Hasidim had a little bit of a problem with submitting to this kind of authority. And they decided that it's time maybe to give their advice on how the movement should be run. So they called a meeting together and they were gonna bring up some of their issues and you know, potential solutions. Maybe we'll teach you how to Rebbe, you know, how, to, how to do your thing. And the young Rebbe told them, I wanna tell you a, a story. There was a mountain that nobody could scale. Everybody that tried would die Finally, one person got all the gear and all the courage together. And he did the journey slowly but surely and he made it up to the top of the mountain. When he came up to the top of the mountain, what did he see? A little boy walking around the mountain. He was shocked. Goes to the boy, he says, Yingala, yingala, what are you doing here? Young boy, young boy, don't you know how many thousands of people have tried to climb this mountain? How'd you get here? And the child says, I was born here. And he gave a sharp look to all of the Hasidim and they were very quiet. (laughs) Yes. And uh, that's it. Some people have to climb the mountain and some people are born on top of the mountain. And we talked back then, it was actually one of the biggest topics probably in book one of the Tanya, how every Jew actually has a duality. There's a part of us that's born on the mountain that's already arrived and there's a part of us that has to journey up the mountain. In the words of, of the Tanya, back then, the Altar Rebbe said, every person has what's called ahavah Mesutaret, a love to God that's dormant. Inside you there's a fire that can never be put out, that's always seeking a relationship with Hashem. Whether you allow it to be expressed, whether you don't, whether you live up to its expectations or you don't, whether you put it to sleep, you choose to ignore it, it's there. And yet, we have to also climb the mountain at the same time. That gives us the impetus, that gives us the power, knowing that it's always there makes it easier. But you have to go through the process, go through the steps, climb the mountain and bring it out. First of all, on the most basic level, because it's a mitzvah. There is a mitzvah in the Torah to love Hashem. We say it every time we say the Shema. You shall love God. And... If we're talking about the hidden love inside, then there's no commandment necessary. It's there. The commandment is to make it tangible, to make it palpable. The Rambam counts it as one of the first mitzvahs, so it's super fundamental. It's what leads to all other positive mitzvahs. Only when you're in relationship with someone do you want to do what they want, what they want from you. Out of love is born our commitment to mitzvahs. So it behooves us to awaken the love. And also on a more mystical level, so long as we rely on the dormant love, it's only going to stay in its area, the godly part of ourselves. In order for it to spill over and have an influence on the mundane part of ourselves, on the human part of ourselves, or what we called them back then the animal part of ourselves, it has to be woken up, because when it's woken up that's when it's felt in your body, it's felt in your bones, and that's when it has an influence on the other parts, the outside parts of you. Prayer is supposed to be one of the ways to assist in the wake-up of this love. I'm already making cross-references. You can also check up on Spotify, chapter 47 of Book 1 in Netanya. We talked at length about the journey of prayer, how it's a ladder, how if you follow the sitter seriously, it's a recipe for awakening A feeling of closeness to Hashem. The sitter is set up in a specific order because there's intention to that. We begin with talking about Hashem as our Creator, how He provides all our needs for us. It's called Psuke de Zimra, all the verses of of praise. We sing essentially, we sing out to Hashem in thanks for all the things that He does for us. So it's God as He relates to me. Then the sitter moves, to speaking about God vis-à-vis Himself. and the spiritual realms, the angels, all the blessings before the Shema are about how all the angels are in relationship with God. And we talk about, we describe the grandeur of the higher worlds and what's going on. So in that way, we're supposed to ourselves, on that journey, move away from a self-centered God to more of a God-centered self, if that's a way of saying it. To shift the focus, to shift the paradigm away from ourselves and onto Hashem. And then, when you say the Shema, having meditated on all of that, the natural result is ve'ahavta, is a love. Is that inspired by Jacob's story? Is it, it is inspired or? partially by Jacob's story. Yes, next week's Parsha, the ladder in Jacob's dream. Sulam Mutzav Arca, V'rosho Magia The ladder is on the ground and reaches the heavens. Says chasidus the ladder of prayer begins on the ground. It's focused first on earthly mundane things and then it moves up. And we get higher and higher. And we're supposed to, every day, climb that ladder and then come back down. Because you shouldn't stay up in heaven. You've got to come back down and be in the world. But the experience of davening is supposed to be a a help to get us there. As a total aside, but the altar ever mentions it, so I want to just bring it out. There's a debate among the commentaries if if, uh, prayer is even a mitzvah. might be shocking to hear that. But only some authorities think that prayer is a biblical commandment. Other authorities think that it's a rabbinic injunction. And the Alter Rabbi writes, not here, but in a different letter, that anybody who thinks that prayer is only rabbinic has never seen the light of day. That's the expression that he uses. Even if it was enacted by the rabbis, the spirit of davening is, if it's not a mitzvah, it's greater than a mitzvah. It's a super mitzvah. The example given in halacha is that you know, there's, there's a list of the limbs in a human body. We say there's 248 limbs, 265 sinews. If you look at the list, the way it's enumerated in the Mishnah, the spinal cord is not counted. So all the commentaries say, why is the spinal cord not counted? And the Hasidic answer is because, not because it's not a limb, but because it's, it's what's holding everything up. A limb is an individual piece of the puzzle. The spinal cord is the base of everything. So if davening is not a biblical mitzvah, it's beyond being a biblical mitzvah. It's what's holding the whole Judaism up. And the Altair says if you take this into account that davening is supposed to help you love Hashem, then from that perspective it's also biblical because it's helping you fulfill a biblical mitzvah. So you have that, that, that spin. But either way, that's, that's the first thing in davening that, require, that, that highlights the requirement for investment. Because the purpose is supposed to help you arouse a passionate relationship with God. So, from that perspective, you got to be ready to get into it. you got to be ready to put in what it takes to help your heart light up. The second element in davening starts with a base. It's called birur. Birur literally means refinement or clarity. Clarity is required when there's confusion. Don't have to tell you, today there's a lot of confusion out there in the world. You read the news... A lot of confusion. Big entanglement. And some clarity is required. Some sanity is required. A clear voice, a proud voice. But in in the Kabbalistic view of things, the world is a mess. And it's God's intentional mess. Hashem made a lot of entanglement, a lot of mix ups. He didn't make separate domains. In which if you go here, you'll feel the material. If you go here, you'll feel the spiritual. If you go here, you'll be in touch with God. And if you go here, you won't. Everything is enmeshed. It's one big challenge. It really is. Sometimes you find Hashem in the place where you would least expect Him. And again, it's purposeful. Hashem wants us to have that merit of birur of being the ones to clear up the confusion. Being the ones to engage, using the world, using its accessories, and redeeming the godliness in it. Physically, I mean, Hashem made it that our bodies are dependent on food, and drink, and clothes, and and, and a place to live. All of these things are intentional. It's so that we use each of these things as a vehicle to become more godly and clear up more parts of the world. And again, Alter makes the point, in earlier generations, they were on the express lane, the Birur express lane. They come in, clear everything up, they come out. Kind of like what I told you it was last week, two weeks ago, the earlier generations, the Torah scholars, they went into a room and it was light. You know, they just went straight for the door. There was no, there was no tapping and touching and, and, and lengthy experiences. It was, you got in, you did your thing and you got out. Even then, by the way, they spent time on prayer because of this. They were trying to accomplish birur. This birur in the mind, birur in the heart, birur in the soul. Certainly nowadays, we have to be super focused on the fact that our prayers are achieving this birur. And... Pass the cookies. Do some, do some birur, you know? Eat a cookie, make his a blessing. Birth, his birth has been make a blessing and you refine the cookie. But because davening requires or is there to help us arouse the love, because davening is part of the process of us clearing up more of our minds, more of our hearts, more of our soul, and more of our world, it takes investment and everybody knows that investment takes time. If you've ever tried trying to get a client, everybody knows the second the client feels that you're trying to get him, is the second he's going to just drop it. You need to go in very smoothly, ease in, cultivate the relationship, and then something grows. It's got to be trust. If you're investing money, if you're investing time, you're investing resources. Every investment takes time. Careful consideration. And the davening experience is no different. It requires an investment and therefore it requires time. And the altar Rebbe says all of this to lead up to a very practical message. And kind of like Shlomo was saying before, he uses some uncomfortable words. He says, I've heard some, some not good news, it makes my stomach turn. That's the words he uses. Shamati vatirgaz bitni. My stomach is, is upset. What's the, what's the bad news? I hear that there are certain people that would like to be the chazan, they would like to lead. The prayer service, and they would like to lead the prayer service in a more relaxed, calm way. They don't want to rush. They want to daven a little longer than usual. And in doing so, they actually their real desire actually is to make everybody's lives longer, because the Talmud says that one of the things that makes long life is long davening. <laughs> Three things linked the. Days of man. One of them is hama'arich bitfilato. So you have a guy who wants to give everybody a little extra life and I hear, says the author Rebbe, that people are removing him from this post. People are saying, we have a schedule, we got to get to work, we got to rush out, we don't have time. He doesn't say this, but it's very applicable nowadays also because many times you have somebody who is in mourning and the custom is that the Avell wants to usually uh, lead the prayer. But what do you do if the Avell has other responsibilities? And He says, okay, I'm coming for this 645 minion but I've got to be out by you know, 730 because I have to go take my kids to carpool. I remember I was in New York once. Um, <clears throat> something with the flight, it was a bit of a strange flight time and I had to be... Um, I had to be on this flight very early in the morning, but I didn't want to miss the minyan. I wanted to find the minyan that day. So I found some shul, like 20 minutes away from the airport, where they do a vasican minion, minyan, like it's with the sunrise. They dive in with the sunrise every day. They start before, and Shemona Esri begins at sunrise. Anyway, I, I came in there, and uh, I went over to the, the chazan's place, just you know, just looking around the shul. And I see, I kid you not, on the, uh, on the lectern, is a schedule. The yeah, with the seconds. the seconds. Yeah, it says. No, no, no. You have to be here by 2 minutes and 15 seconds. And then you'll be by Baruch by 5 minutes and 20 seconds. And then by Shema at this, like it's timed out. Like a, like a, like a chart. No. no. The altar ever calls this news that makes his stomach turn. Mm-hmm. And he says, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Let's assume you're really under so much pressure. The davening needs to be 15 minutes shorter for you. We all know people like that. Actually, they have to be on site, whatever it is in the a.m. You simply, you, 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 you're, so, you're so rushed, you can't wait for the chazan to reach, you know, the kedusha after, uh, after the amida. You know what? The author says, better for you not to hear kedusha, not to hear baruchu, than go down and, and make this guy's life miserable. You know, the joke about the guy who uh, came to the rabbi, he says he wants to be the chazan on Yom Kippur. The rabbi says, what happened? He says, I have yard So the rabbi says, listen, your father made you an orphan, not a cantor." <laughs> some people uh, are meant to be the chazan, some people are not. And the says, there's actually, there's actually halachic room for this. Torah exempts people that are under duress. If you're in a circumstance that's beyond your control, you get a pass in many areas of the Torah. And um, especially, it's actually talked about, specifically when it comes to praying with a minion. There's a whole section in Tractate Rosh Hashanah at the end about people who are not able to make the minion. They're called the Am Sadot, the people in the fields. They work all day, from sunrise to sunset. They had no time to come to shul. They just simply weren't able to. And the Talmud says that even though typically... When you deal with verbal mitzvahs, you have to at least hear the verbal pronunciation of whatever it is in order to fulfill your obligation. Let's say the Megillah, right? The ideal mitzvah is to read the Megillah. If you don't know how to read the Megillah, you come to shul. You hear somebody else read the Megillah. Shomea keonen, it's called. When you hear, it's as if you're pronouncing it. When it comes to prayer, the Talmud says, if you're truly not able to be with the minyan, the fact that there's a minyan in your city. Taking place every day, and the chazan, the leader, has everybody in mind, fulfills truly fulfills the obligation of praying with a minyan on behalf of those guys who cannot make it to shul. Full on, shemone esrei, kedusha, barchu all the obligations. So the altar says, "I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to assume that you're as tied up as those guys. You have a shul in your neighborhood, but and and you can come there, but you can only give it." 20-25 minutes. After you got to get out. Okay. Get out. Better come to shul, daven at your pace, and go to work. The fulfillment of the obligation will come as the chazan recites his amida when he, when, he, when he recites it. Don't change around. Don't deprive the minyan of life because of your time constraints. By the way, it's not even in the letter, but it's a known fact that many, many villages in those times didn't have a minyan. Even the Rambam talks about it. The other day, we was only one chapter a day of Rambam talking about Purim. So he mentions that there were certain cities which didn't have a minyan. They just didn't have people get together. They would only come to the big cities twice a week. So they could read the Megillah before Purim. Two, three days before Purim, on the day which they came to the big city. It's a common, common phenomenon, especially in Poland and in those years. People used, to, people used to go to the big city for Shoshana and Yom Kippur, you know, to be with a minyan for the high holidays or they would hire people to come to them for the high holidays. All year, it really wasn't their fault, you know. Some people had a custom, they would daven at the time of the minyan. Mm. They they couldn't come to shul, but they know that in their city, or the city next to them, the shul davens at, you know, 7.30 a.m. 7.30 a.m., they put on Tawson and Tawson and they daven. I actually have friends who do this till today. They're on on shlichut, they have a Chabad center in places where there is no minyan. They get a minyan maybe once a month whatever it is, and every other day, they daven at the same time as the nearest, uh, nearest minyan. South Dakota. South Dakota. North Dakota. Central. Wyoming, Mississippi, all these places. Wyoming actually has a couple of minyans, but seriously, really? South Dakota has it once a month. Okay, there you go. So the Altar Abba says, if your circumstances require it, come to shul, daven on your own, do your thing. Let the congregation have what they deserve. and the practical message here is running against the backdrop of what davening is supposed to accomplish reflecting on the fact that davening is there to ignite your heart and to change the world you know what, doesn't work for you today okay you can't make the investment today but everybody else wants to let them do it elsewhere in the Tanya, the Altar Rebbe says Try to make it happen when you can. Like the great day for businessmen to daven is Shabbat, because the anyways don't work. They come to Shul, that's your day. If you can't do it on Shabbat, do it once a month. Find some time to make the investment. But don't worry, we got you covered. The other days we got you covered. Let the minion take its prayers as seriously as they can. Why does Chabad fly? It's like, it's beyond, like, sometimes, like, it, it's <coughs> like, ridiculous. I don't have a good answer for that. It's so absurd sometimes that it's like, it's like, wow. I didn't like, hear it. Sometimes when I go to someone, <coughs> like I What did the Chabad eight, minions like, rush? No. I'm part of, like, two minions. Yeah. This it, is like, there's no way. Who, <coughs> like, who, next guy? Boom, boom, boom. I'm like, how? Yeah. <laughs> That's not prayer. One man's garble is another man's piss. Yeah, I mean, if you, you got to find a your Yeah. I don't have the answer. I think I told a story in one of these classes about the guy who, uh, who came to the shul one day and he wanted to be the chazan. And he did this super speedy minion. And uh, after davening, the rabbi came over to him. And said, <laughs> "So he said, he said what? What do you say?" He said, <laughs> "He said what? Well, I can't hear you." He said, "Oh, oh good morning, Yid. How are you?" I says, "Oh, now you're talking clearly like a normal human being." So the rabbi says, "Yeah, yeah. What do you think you were talking to God about before?" Come, <laughs> you come to shul, and then you, that's you—that's how you're talking to Hashem. You know, you know what huh? you know what so you know what the guy said he's a smart guy he said lesson learned lesson learned but I know from experience that when you have a baby and the baby garbles at you because you're the parent and you're in tune you know what the baby wants <laughs> so he said he said some days I feel like I'm the baby and Hashem is my father and, and he knows what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, it's not a justification, okay? Look, I'm not trying to justify I'm just saying there's a justification for other Jews. They have struggles. Look, the Alt-Rebbe, if the Alter wrote this letter, that means people were struggling in his time already. It's, not, it's not, a, not a new struggle. People were doing this. They were rushing through the davening and the Alter Eber was there to rebuke them and he said, you know... He, this is what you got to do. And we, and we should. You know, we, should take it, we should take it more seriously. This should be a, this should be a wake-up call, whether it's about um, having our phones during davening and keeping the distractions out, at least creating the space, you know? Even if nothing actually fills the space, but at least you created it. Five extra minutes would do a lot. Five extra minutes would do a lot. No one's going to die in five minutes. I'll be honest. I can also improve. Everybody can improve. And and we need to improve. You know what? Maybe that's the message of of the letter. That's the takeaway. The takeaway is how can we make this calling more personal? Whatever talks to you, whatever your prayer needs, whatever improvement your davening experience needs, take that away from this letter. Let that that be the inspiration for better davening. And you know what? If around the table we, we we walk away from this and we become better daveners because of it, we fulfilled the Alter Rebbe's intention. The letter was written with a purpose, and the letter fulfilled its purpose. Its purpose in the 1790s, and its purpose in 2023. L'chaim. 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 L'chaim.